If you will, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 20 today. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Last week, we kicked off an initiative we're calling Putting Down Roots as we seek to enter into a new chapter for our congregation. Putting Down Roots is a three-year generosity initiative that will enable us as a church to expand our capacity for ministry so that we can be more effective in doing the work that God has called us to do to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples, and continue to invest in our community and mobilize to the nations. We know that, if you've been here very long, that a big part of this initiative has to do with the eventual constructing of a new facility. We've been in this facility for nine years uh, as a campus of Leonardtown Baptist Church and now as Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, all combined about nine years. And we're looking forward to the day when we will have a facility of our own where we can continue to leverage the ministry that God has called us to here in St. Mary's County and beyond. And obviously a big part of that is that facility, but keep in mind that this facility is not an end of itself. Remember that this facility is going to be a tool that will help us better and more effectively fulfill the mission that God has called us to, to exalt the Lord, to equip disciples, and to engage the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you were not here last week, I want to encourage you uh, on your way out, if you didn't already, to, to get one of these booklets. These little booklets... Um, that we've put together about 16 pages worth of information. I know that some of the folks from the capital campaign team will be available after the service at the door to give you one of these if you didn't pick one up or if you've lost one. Uh, this really is going to be a helpful guide for you. It's going to give a good overview of what this initiative is about and also give some very practical um, helps as you prayerfully consider uh, committing to this gift. And if you've not also done so, we would encourage you to pick up a commitment card. And right now, all we're doing is asking you as a member of this church, or as those of you who consider Redeeming Grace Baptist Church your church, that you would take those and just begin praying what the Lord would have you do concerning this three-year commitment. Uh, I do want to encourage you to stop by our Putting Down Roots table. It's out there. It's clear where it's at. It's, uh, there's a rendering even of the future facility of what it could look like. But that table has all the information and all the details you need uh, to continue to be informed. I would also encourage you to visit our church website. There is a page on our church website committed to putting down roots, and it's going to also have a lot of the same information and other things that will help you as you think through uh, what we're being called to do uh, in this uh, putting down roots effort. As we're continuing down this pathway, there are two things we're asking you to do right now. One is we need 100% participation. Uh, we've told you that our goal over the next three years is to raise $1.5 million. And we're going to need 100% participation. If you are a member of this church, or you consider this church your church home, we're not talking to you who may be visiting us this morning, but if, if this is your church, we're asking for you to participate in this effort. And what we're asking you to do right now is to commit to making a commitment. That's all we're asking is to commit to, for you to commit to making a commitment. We're also asking you to prayerfully consider sacrificial giving. This is a God-sized goal, and we know, we know that he can do more than we think or ask. That's what the scripture tells us. And so ask him. Ask him uh, and 
and be in a, in a posture willing to invest in God-sized ways. We're, we're asking you to do that, to prayerfully consider uh, how you can give proportionately to how you've been blessed. If you've been blessed in great ways, we need to cons you to consider giving in great ways, for example. And so ultimately, it's about your heart and being engaged with God and how he would lead you to invest in this work. And so uh, that's what we're doing. And now we're going to turn our attention to Colossians chapter 1 as we uh, consider verses 15 through 20 as our passage this morning. This is Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The Apostle Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself in it, showing us who you are. We thank you, Lord, that we can open this scripture this morning and, and, and hear from you. God, we ask that you would help us understand what you have to say and that because of that, that our lives would be altered and transformed for your glory. That's our prayer. We ask you now to come and help us as we consider your word in Jesus' name. Amen. As you think about the lives that we all live, especially here in the West, I think it's easy for us to say that, that we all live fairly comfortable lives, don't we? we? We do. It's just a reality. Now, while there are cultural challenges for sure, we still enjoy a lot of plenty and pleasure. There, there's a lot that we simply enjoy. We're spoiled. Can I say that? We, we are. We just we benefit from a lot just living where we live in the day in which we live. We are blessed beyond measure. You compare that to many many of our brothers and sisters even in other nations where they suffer greatly, or consider many Christians throughout the history of the church where persecution has continued to go on, and and even in this day and time we know that it happens. Many have suffered much for their faith. Many continue to suffer today for their faith. But as Christians here in the United States, here in the West, in the culture in which we live, we enjoy a relatively comfortable life. And because of that, it makes it difficult sometimes to follow Jesus as he's called us to follow him. Living in the relative comfort we do makes it a real challenge for us to take up our cross daily and follow him. One of the reasons for that is that the culture in which we live, it kind of feeds into to what, we've, what we're used to. What, what happens is we live in this culture where, where it just feeds on our tendency to be discontent. We have a lot, and so we expect a lot, don't we? So every day, every day, we are bombarded by 
continual messages that tell us, that tells you, that tells me that you simply don't have enough. Your car is not new enough. Your house is not big enough. Your looks are not pretty enough. Your kids are not involved enough. On and on and on we go. We, you, you don't have enough. You need more. That's why we have commercials. That's why we have people who have degrees in marketing, right? You're helping. No, I'm just kidding. Use your marketing skills for God's glory. Um, no, that's, that's the culture in which we live. You, you simply don't have enough and you need more. That's the message we continue to hear is that we don't have enough. But here's an important point I want you to hear this morning about that. The, the issue... The, the struggle that we have, the issue is not the desire to have more. Okay, it's a natural desire to have more. The problem is where we go for that desire to be satisfied. That's the problem. It's not that you have a problem for something more in your life, that that's in and of itself an issue. The problem is where you go to have that desire satisfied. So one of the reasons that I think prompted Paul to write this letter to the Colossians. He's writing this letter to a group of Christians that were in imminent danger of falling prey to false teaching. And think about that. Any teaching that stands in opposition to Christ and the gospel has at its core this message that you need something more than Jesus. That he is not sufficient. That yes, he might have been important, but you need Jesus plus something else in your life. That, that's, that's what really the message of false teachers continue to propagate today, under the umbrella even of Christianity. Jesus is good, but you need Jesus some plus something. So in short, one of the themes that you'll see throughout this book of Colossians, as Paul writes to encourage this church that is facing the... On, the, 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 uh, the, the uh, the attacks of these false teachers is he's basically saying, listen, Jesus is enough. Christ is enough for you. Now, last week we saw Paul's prayer for them, that, that his prayer was for them to be filled with the knowledge of the gospel and, and to, 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 to know what, the, uh, what it means to, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and on and on we, on and we went last week. Today in our passage, he goes on to highlight the infinite value and worth of Jesus so that they know and so that we know by extension now that he is enough and here's why he is enough. I want to not only say to them Jesus is enough, here's why he is enough because of his infinite value and worth. So as we look at this passage, I want us to see where Paul here identifies four truths about Jesus that should leave us all saying that Jesus is enough, which should produce nothing more than a humble devotion to him in all areas of our life. Truth number one, why is Jesus enough? Why, why is, is Christ enough? Why is it that, that we should live lives completely devoted and following him? Truth number one is that he is the divine image. He is the divine image. You see in verse 15, Paul says, he, speaking about Jesus, he is the in image of the invisible God. Uh, 
Think about the image of God. That's, this is language that we know that, that comes from the creation account in Genesis 1, doesn't it? We know that, that we were created in the image of God. But, but as we think about man being created in the image of God, and now Paul's referring to Christ being the image of God, there's a, there's a distinct difference here. Where Adam in the garden was created in the image of God, we see here that Christ is the image of God. He's not created in the image of God. He is the image of God. Jesus is the perfect representation and visible manifestation of God. Jesus is not merely a picture of what God is like. He is very God himself. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 9, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He brings to light and makes knowable the God who is invisible. We know that God is spirit, and Jesus comes to say, this is, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know who God is, look at me. He is the divine image. Second truth that we see from this text is that he is the sustaining creator. He's the sustaining creator. Not only is he the image of God, he is the firstborn, it says, of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now, it's important that we understand what that means. Paul is not saying that Jesus was born first as if he is the first of God's creation. Now, there's a group of people about a mile up the road on the right that will teach you that here in Callaway, that he's a created being. This is not what the text is saying. Firstborn has several meanings in Scripture, several, several places you could go to see this, but, but you could just summarize it in this way. It often re, will, will refer to priority or rank. It will highlight a special relationship. For example, God referred to Israel as his firstborn, and so it implies this relationship that he has with his chosen people in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's used in reference to a legal heir. Likely, Paul has in mind, as he, wrote, as he writes here in Colossians 1, he probably had in mind Psalm 89, verse 27, which says this concerning King David. It says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This is clearly an indication of priority and rank. It couldn't mean that David was born first since he was the youngest of his brothers. And so it's language that's used not to, not to just simply refer to order, but importance and value and worth. So here the term as it pertains to Jesus speaks to his place and rank, recognizing his privilege of authority and rule over all things. In other words, what this says when you hear that Jesus is the firstborn, it means simply that he is first and foremost. He takes first place. He is first in order and importance. He comes before all things. He ranks over all things. It, it's, it's a language that points to his supremacy over all things. I you to notice several facts about him as the firstborn of creation. It, it refers here to Jesus as being the creator of the world. Verse 16, we see that clearly, don't we? He is the agent, first of all, of creation. For by him all things were created. The Son of God is the creator of the world. Wherever you look, 
things seen and things unseen. Everything owes its existence to Christ. Everything. You look around and you, you see what is, it, and it owes its existence. The, the fact that it is there is a testimony to the creative work of Jesus. In John 1, verse 3, John said, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Hebrews 1, the writer there says in verse 2, In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom, through whom he also created the world. Jesus is not the first of created beings. He is the creator of the world. He could not be created because he is the one who created. So he is the agent of creation. A second point we see from this text is that he is the goal of creation. We see that in verse 16. For by him all things were created, and look at all things, in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. For him. Everything that was made was made for Christ. Creation. Creation exists by the hand of Christ and for the glory of Christ. And friends, that includes you. That includes you. Here's a, here's a very important truth that I think that we would all do well to be reminded of on a daily basis. Are you ready for it? This world does not exist to serve you. This life ain't about you. You're not the greatest thing in the universe. Jesus is. I know that we, I need to be reminded about that. It's the way we live sometimes, you know. The way this comes out in me is through the things I will say as I'm driving. As if I'm the only person in the universe. And all these other cars need to go back and driving school and figure out how to drive appropriately. We're, we're not the most important thing in the universe. Jesus is. He's the point of creation. You're not the point of creation. You do bring glory to God in, 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 in the work that he's done through redemption, but, but Jesus is the point of it. He is the goal of creation. Friends, that, that truth alone will free you up from all kinds of anxiety and frustration. One of the reasons we're, we're so frustrated on a regular basis or, or, or just filled with all kinds of anxiety in our life is because somehow, in some way, we, we think we're the most important thing in the world. And something is, 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 is hindering us from, from feeling that. Jesus is the point. Not only is he the goal of creation, he's the sustainer of creation. At verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. He's before all things. He's He's eternal. And because he's the eternal creator, he is able to hold it all together. It's not like the, 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 the Son of God came into existence at a point in time. He is the eternal Son of God, living in perfect relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all of eternity. So Jesus, although the Son of God became a man, we know as Jesus, the Son of God has always been. It wasn't as if he came into being at some point in time and then God just kind of handed him the universe and said, here you go, kind of run it for me. 
No, the Son of God made it and he sustains it. He's before all things. Friends, that too is freeing and encouraging. One of, the, one of the things about that is that this world is not ultimately dependent upon you. I know that breaks your heart this morning. I know you woke up today and thought, man, if I, if I leave this world today, it's going to crumble. Listen, you may be here today and gone tomorrow and the world is not going to implode. It's not. You and I are like a vapor. Another thing that that encourages is reminds us even when life is at its hardest that Jesus is still there presently holding it all together. The world does not come unraveling by the seams because God in his sovereignty is upholding, sustaining, holding together the very creation that he made. And that reality is something that ought to drive us all to devote the entirety of our lives to Christ. He is preeminent. He is first. And he will never be second. He is the divine image. He is the sustaining creator. It all exists by him and for him. And then point number three, he is the head of the church. Verse 18 and he is the head of the church, or the body, the church. Now, Paul, he now moves, he, he transitions. He, he's been talking about the, the fact that Christ is the creator and the sustainer of the world, and now he moves from creation to salvation. He, he, he begins to, to, to expand further the, the view that we ought to have of who Jesus is. He moves away from creation to now show Jesus' preeminence over the church. There are many pictures in the Bible that describe the church. We know that there are many images, the image of family, kingdom, a vineyard, a flock, a building, and a bride. They're just some that we could go to and say these are terms, these are images that, that um, the Bible will often use to describe the church. But right here, Paul uses a word that I think is it's such a rich word. It's body. The body. When you go to places like 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and really see how, how that's unpacked and, and how we see the beauty of that image. It's one of the best images we have about what the church is. It's a body, and we're told here that Christ is the head of that body. The, we know that the head is the control system. I mean, you're not much without your head. Some of you ain't much with it, but you're definitely not much with it. without it. He controls. Jesus is the head, meaning that he guides and governs his church. And it means that the church ought to live in joyful submission to him. It's interesting that Paul speaks right here in these verses about, just right after he's talked about Christ being the creator of the universe, I mean, He's just right out of that, right? I mean, he's been talking about he's the image. He's the divine image of God. He's, he's God in the flesh, and he's the creator and the sustainer of the entire cosmos. Now he's the head of the church. When you, when you think about that, it just goes to show how important the church is in God's redemptive plan. Church is not some kind of 
alternative. The church is not some kind of, oh, it's a good thing in the world. Here we're seeing the priority that the Lord himself places on the church. There are a lot of important things in this world, but the church ranks high in God's scheme. Indeed, the local church becomes the primary means through which he establishes his kingdom, through which he brings about the work of redemption in the world. It is the local church. It is the universal church as well as we join together as God's people, known as the church to bring about the work of the Lord. So when we think about that, when we see the priority here as this glorious passage unfolds for us, and, and many think that it's an early hymn in the, in the early church that was, that was used here in verses 15 through 20, right here in the midst of it, he's been talking about the glory of Christ, the fact that he's the divine image, that he's the creator, and now he's the head of the church. Just, just helps us understand how valuable God places the church, how much value he places on the church. Thus, our commitment to the church ought to match that. goes on to say he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. There's that word firstborn again, that in everything he might be preeminent. This again reminds us of Christ's supreme status and that those of us who will be raised from the dead is that Christ ranks above all. He's supreme and he's sovereign even over death. And he has, the, he has full rights over his church because he conquered the great enemy of man, death. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn. Again, rank and priority. He's, he's the most important from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. Notice that, that Paul even makes application here, doesn't he? Because of all that Christ is, because of all that he is, because of who he is, he deserves to be recognized as preeminent. Makes application pretty easy, doesn't it? When we think about who Jesus is, because he is the sovereign, supreme, exalted, preeminent image of God, creator of the world, the head of the church, he deserves nothing less than our full allegiance to him in everything. Everything. He's preeminent. He's the head of the church. But number four, notice he, he is the reconciling Savior. He's the divine image. He's the sustaining creator. He's the head of the church, and he is the reconciling Savior. Paul reinforces the fact that Jesus is God here. Verse 19, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Just in case you missed it the first time, there it is again. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Not just part of God, not just some of God, all the fullness of God. And because the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ, he is able to bring about reconciliation that God both requires and reconciliation that we need. The one who is the visible representation of God. The one who created and sustains the universe, the one who rules over the church, is the same one who went to a cross to bear the penalty and judgment for your sin. Same one. Notice the same sequence that we see here with Christ being 
the Savior as he was the creator. In verse 16, as he was being focused on there as the creator in creation, it was by him, through him, and for him. And here in reconciliation, when he reconciles us to himself, it's in him, through him, and for him. Jesus is not only the agent of creation, he is the agent of our salvation. The very one, think about this, this blows me away. The very one who made the heavens and the earth, just spoke it into existence. The one who holds it all together. Like all of those molecules and atoms, A-T-O-M-S, that are being held together. God's doing that. The same one who, who does all of that is the same one who came to this earth and gave his life for people just like you for your selfishness, for your pride, for your greed, for your lust, for all the things that mark our lives in a world of brokenness and sin. The creator and sustainer of the universe came himself and took upon himself the requirement that was due to bring you to him. When Jesus died on the cross, several things happened. A couple of things listed here. One, verse 20, it says, Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. God made peace with sinners through the death of Jesus. Jesus died as a substitute in our place, taking upon himself the full judgment and wrath of God against our sin. This is what he did, and by that act, those who were at enmity with God, those were who, who were enemies of God, which was all of us because of our sin, now can have peace with God. We can be reconciled to God. We can be brought to God and given a right standing before God, not because we're good enough, not because we're righteous enough, not because we do things on our own, but because Jesus came, the creator of the universe came and took upon himself the sin and judgment we deserved for our sin. And the promise of the gospel is that whoever would repent of their sins and put their hope in Christ would be forgiven. And friend, if you've, if you've never done that, if you've never came to that conclusion in your own life, if you've never understood that God, who is righteous and holy, has every right to condemn you because of sin, and yet out of his mere grace, he sent Christ into the world to take upon himself the judgment we all deserve. Friend, if, if, if you've never understood that, that understood this is what God did for you. God did this. He did this to bring you to himself so that your sins could be forgiven and so that you could be clothed in righteousness and have a right standing with him so that you could have peace with God. Right now, if you are not in Christ, you are not at peace with God. You're not. You're an enemy of God. For there to be peace with God, it must come through Christ. But not only does he make peace with sinners, he reconcile, reconciles the entire cosmos. Look at what the text says. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, the, the, the problem with sin is that sin brought cosmic damage. Brought about cosmic damage. It, it impacted the entire universe. 
and the work of redemption that Jesus came to accomplish will indeed bring about cosmic renewal. We're talking about a work that impacts sinners, but a work that will ultimately impact creation. You, you see the theme here, don't you? In verses 15 through 17, we're told that Jesus is agent and Lord of creation. But here in verses 19 through 20, he is the agent and Lord of a new creation. And there's no greater hope in the world than this. We are all enemies of God, and yet Christ came to make peace. And do you know that peace? Do you know what it means to be reconciled to God? As we think about all that Jesus is and see him for who he is in this passage, there's much that could be said. I'll just give you some quick applications from this passage as I thought about, you know, what, how do we respond in such a glorious passage, highlighting such a glorious Savior? <clears throat> Three points of application that I want to encourage you with this morning. What, number one, when we think about who Christ is, no, first and foremost, our, indif our indifference is confronted. You, you, when you hear and you see and God reveals to you through his word the truth of who Christ is, you cannot remain indifferent to this Savior. This passage points us to, to Christ as our saving hope. And you are either with him or not. You're not somebody that just kind of stays in the middle and on the fence or kind of indifferent to Jesus. You either know him or you, or you don't. You either walk with him or you don't. And this passage, just, I think it just confronts that indifference that we want to oftentimes cling to. You can't read this passage and, and remain in a state of indifference towards Christ. Second truth is that, our second point of application is this, is that our perspective is altered. Again, I, I said it earlier, our default and Certainly it's encouraged through the culture as well. Our, de our default has us at the center of the universe. That's just kind of how we think. And the culture continues to propagate that. You're the most important person in the universe. We're kind of at the center of the universe. Everything revolves and, and goes, around, uh, goes around us. This just quickly reminds us is that we're not at the center of the universe. This world is not ultimately about us. It's about Christ and his glory. While our lives are important, we are reminded here, I think, that we are not ultimate. So it begins to change your perspective. When you are confronted with the reality of who Christ is, your perspective about life in general changes, and you begin to see the glory of God in Christ. Your, your, whole, your whole perspective of who you are and what this world is about changes. It can't help but change if God comes and, and opens your heart to the truth of who he is from this text. And number three, our desire is satisfied. Remember I said earlier that the desire for more is not in and of itself the issue. But where we go to have that desire satisfied is where the issue lies. When you find Jesus as your satisfying joy because of who he is, everything will change. 
when you are gripped by his overwhelming glory and generosity towards you, it is, it is, it is no issue to you the way that you spend your life for the sake of the kingdom. You know, there, there were, when you think about who Christ is, there are many things that, 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 that lobby for your devotion today. There's things in the world, things in the culture, false teaching. There are many treasures, many things that will lobby for your desire and devotion. And Paul is reminding us here is that, that, that the one that matters most is Jesus. He is preeminent. He is first. He is the priority. He is the one to which all glory is due. And he is the one to which your life ought to be lived out in radical submission to because he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the creator and sustainer of this universe. He is the divine image and the reconciling Savior who came to give himself for you. You think, well, how does this help me think about my life? A lot of people go to church today and they want to know, what's this got to do with me? Again, putting themselves at the center of the universe. My, my greatest prayer for you today is that when you hear this passage, my greatest prayer for you today is that you leave here seeing Christ as preeminent over all. How that impacts your life will be the work of God. It's the will of God and how he brings about this reality in your own life. When you see Christ as preeminent, that's my prayer, is that you would see Christ as preeminent above all things. That we would be a church radically aware of the glory and beauty of Jesus and radically devoted to living our lives individually and corporately as a church family, making this Jesus known. There's no greater person in the universe, and there's no greater message to share than this. You may ask, well, what does this have to do with this emphasis of putting down roots? Remind you what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, where he said, For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Friend, even, even when we go into a, a season of emphasis like this that we're going through right now, this season of, of, of generosity and, and, and thinking about committing to a, a capital campaign, friend, we can't start with bricks and mortar. I mean, we're getting a pretty good start on our building back here. We just, you know, we're, we're going slow. We, we don't start there. We have to start with our heart. Where is your heart? And friend, an off, often a way to see what's going on in your heart is how, we spend, how you spend your time and how you spend your resources. I love what Tim Keller said. He said, our money shows us what we treasure. Money isn't an idol, but it shows us what our idols are. And things that you value most will never be an effort for you to invest in, ever. I love Chick-fil-A. It's never an effort for me, ever. I never have to think twice about buying a number one, no pickle, sweet tea with lemon to drink. It's no, no effort for me to do that because I value happiness. 
it's usually not an effort for me to, to buy a new book because I love to read and love to grow in understanding. It's never an effort for some of us to buy things, clothes. Why? Because we value our identity. It's not an effort for, for some of us to, to save money. We're not, Pastor, don't lump me in all those, those categories of spending and wasting money. For some of us, it's no effort at all to just suck all our money up and save it because we value security. We value being in control of our lives. You see, what you value most will never be an effort for you to invest in. When you think about who Jesus is, Jesus is the only treasure that died to purchase you. All other treasures in this world, they will demand you do anything to get them, but Jesus is the only treasure that died to get you. Think about that. Why did he come? You think about, first, or first this is Colossians, there's only one. Not Corinthians, Colossians. When you think about Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and you think, this is who he is. This is who Christ is. He is the image of the invisible God, creator of the heavens and earth. Things invisible, visible, thrones, dominions, rulers. I mean, he had everything he needed. Why in the world would the king of the universe come to this broken and messed up and jacked up world to save you? Why? He had it all. He didn't need you. He doesn't need me. It's because he loved us. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he had all the glory. He had everything. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And we know that that is the richness of salvation. And like I said last week, there is no greater cause on the planet than the cause of the gospel. Why is that? Because there is no greater savior. And when you think about the goal that's before us, and you think about all that's before us, and committing to a capital campaign and giving. My guess is that, that most of us didn't just enter this season with, with an automatic desire to give above and beyond our normal giving. But listen, the level of commitment we're talking about here will never be reached unless our desires are first changed. And your desire will not change unless you know and follow the Savior that we are looking at this morning. That's why I say my prayer for you, ultimately, is not that you'll give this much to something. My prayer for you is that you would see Christ for all that he is. And he will change you. Radically change you. Friends, that's that's what it's all about. It's all about the glory of Christ. And as we all pray about what the Lord would be calling us to do in this God-sized effort, we need to pause and just simply ask this simple question. Is Christ preeminent in my life? Is he? 
He is preeminent, with or without you. But is he preeminent in your life? Meaning, do you see him for who he truly is? And friends, that will be evidence how you spend your days in this world. How you use your time, how you use your resources, how you invest in your family, your friends, your work, school, neighbors. And all that you do, it will be it will be seen whether or not Christ is preeminent in our lives. He is preeminent. And brothers and sisters, that very truth is what should compel and drive us to do what we do. It's the very truth that should compel and drive us to put down roots in this community so that we will be a permanent fixture in this community until Christ comes again, declaring and preaching the same truth of who Christ is. Redeeming Grace Baptist Church has been given a glorious privilege to declare the glorious Christ until he comes again. Friend, it's a stewardship that we have. It's a calling, but it's a stewardship that we have to be a gospel people living out our lives on a gospel mission for a glorious Savior. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for showing us all that Christ is. Lord, I thank you that it's helpful to, to come and, and just pause and just contemplate the depths of who, who you are and all that you've done for us. Lord, as we consider as we consider our lives, Lord, my prayer this morning is this. Lord, would you show us, would you open our hearts and would you just show us what we value the most? Lord, it may be that some of us value too much the approval and opinion of others. Some of us value too much the security that we try to store up for ourselves. Some of us may just simply value being recognized and known by important people. Father, you've reminded us that where our treasure is, there will our heart be. The problem is not what we desire. The problem is not that we desire too much. The problem, Lord, is that we desire to have our desires met and satisfied in other things other than Christ. God, would you show us where we're doing that, and would you help us to confess and repent of that this day? Father, we know that you are a glorious God. We know that in Christ we have a glorious Savior. We have been given wonderful promises. We've been given a wonderful salvation. Lord, would you help us to live in light of that and that alone? Father, that we would be a people who not only understand the preeminence of Christ, but God, that we would be a people who live out lives of faithful obedience and devotion to him because of who he is. Thank you, Lord, for showing us this morning, reminding us of all that you are. God, would you change us, we pray in Christ's name.